Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me as always is a man that just like Jonathan Lawrence, he too once was beat up by an old man. He is the captain. Yeah, put him in a body bag, Johnny. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today we are drinking Fat Jillian by the great people at Actual Brewing Company, garage grade four and a half bottle caps out of five. And according to the good people at Actual Brewing, Fat Jillian is a bitter, sweet, imperial stout that is reminiscent of a leathery elephant dipped in dark chocolate. Uh. A big flavor, big, big flavor, so big that it barely fits in your mouth. And this beer was brought to us by all of you with a special thank you to... Justin in Bakersville, North Carolina. And a big shout out to Lindsay in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And a long distance cheers to Carol Ann all the way on the east coast of Ireland. And a big we like you jib to Neil in Winnipeg. A hello and thank you to Kimberly in Surprise, Arizona. And last but not least, a cheers mates to Mark in Conventi, UK. So whether you're from the UK or from Arizona, wherever you are, if you want to help us fill up the fridge for next week's show, go to truecrimegarage.com, click on the donate button. All right, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer, let's talk some true crime. She has not been seen since uh, last night. However, they did talk to her this morning, a little after 4 o'clock a.m. And I want to stress that what we're doing at this point in time is we're working from the apartment and then we're working our way out. And we are at about a quarter of a mile right now. 
We'll be extending that search probably to about a half a mile or so, and I don't think I want to comment any further about that. We'll be doing a neighborhood canvas. Those houses that would front streets that would be uh, that would have access to the apartment complex, we'll be getting a hold of those residents and asking them if they saw or heard anything. About one quarter of a mile from the uh, apartment complex was searched along the riverbank and out extending from the riverbank. And there were a number of hits uh, along the riverbank. However, we have not confirmed whether those would be something that we would follow up on or not. Uh, we are back at the riverbank with the uh, canines, and we are going to check to see if there is additional hits along the river. On Wednesday, June 28, 1995, the police in Mason City, Iowa, were still searching for a missing woman. Judy Husentrude, age 27, apparently was abducted early on the 27th as she left her apartment for work. She is the morning and noon producer and television anchor at KIMT-TV. Jody grew up in Long Prairie, Minnesota. She was a flight attendant for Northwest Airlines for a few years before going into a career in television. And one thing, looking into this case right away, you're going to see that Jody was well-liked and she was a popular individual. Jody is this upbeat, friendly, outgoing, very lovely person. This is uh, according to Ray Gove. Now, Ray was her former band director at the Long Prairie High School. Mm -hmm. where she twice was a member of the state champion high school golf team as well. You always knew when she was in the room, he said. Jody graduated from Long Prairie High School and later from St. Cloud State University. She worked at a TV station in Cedar Rapids, Iowa from February 1991 to April of 1992 and then went to Alexandra's KSAX-TV to be a reporter and morning anchor until November of 1993 when she moved to Mason City, Iowa. Her former station manager at Alexandra said it has become common for TV newswomen to receive unwanted attention from men who become obsessed. But police say they are not aware that Hoosentrude had any such problem. Now, Jody Husentrue is well-known in Alexandra area, and the KSAX-TV, they started fielding calls very quickly after the disappearance, and these calls were coming in from friends and viewers seeking information or wanting to pass along their concerns. Mike Burgess, who hired her at Alexandra, said she is one of those very nice people who come from small towns. She works hard and is always willing to marshal a parade, speak at a breakfast, cover a news event, someone you could really count on. Well, it's kind of interesting because we met so many people from at CrimeCon from Minnesota, and Jody had that Minnesota accent, and they actually told her at some point that she should try to get rid of it. And I think she was looking and working towards losing that accent, or at least was being encouraged to do so, which was kind of funny though, Captain, because everything that I found from people that she worked for and worked with, they would always say, 
you know, her charm was that she was this Minnesota girl from a small town. That was her charm. And it came like blaring through the TV. And that's why people just loved watching her and loved listening to her. Yet they, they made her want to kind of lose that a bit. Anyway, regarding the t- television officials becoming increasingly concerned about unwanted attention that some of the women in TV news were getting, according to her former boss, Mike, he stated that what from what he saw usually was not what he would call stalking. It was typically men would get some kind of fixation on a reporter or anchor who was coming into their house every day through the television. And he stated that in bigger markets, it seems like every station has one of these guys, but it's usually just some unwanted phone calls and letters and, and maybe a drive by once in a while. Mm -hmm. But it's, but sometimes I guess it could be more serious and that could be the case here. Now, according to the Mason city police captain, Mike Harvelson, he states that they considered this to be an abduction, a possible abduction right away. Now he was the, he was heading up this investigation and he admitted that from the get go, that we really don't have any other possible theories about what happened. And we don't like what we found at the crime scene. So we have a bunch of good information here, captain. So let's start with the timeline of her disappearance and the investigations out. Shall we on Tuesday, June 27, 1995, Jody Husentrude does not report to work between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. Her This is her regular arrival time as the morning and noon anchor and producer at KIMT-TV. Okay, so let's pour through this first just so everyone has a good understanding. Jody is on the 6 o'clock morning newscast. So typically they would like for her and the other anchor and other coworkers to be there at the station at 3 a.m. By most accounts, it sounds like this may have been not such a hard and fast rule because by most accounts, they refer to starting time as 3 to 3.30 a.m. And it also sounds like that it may not have been terribly uncommon for her or other employees to be late. Right now, Amy Coons, who is also a producer at the TV station, she does arrive for work that day at 3 a.m. as scheduled. Now, at 4:10 a.m., Jody Husentrude receives a phone call at her apartment, and this is a telephone call from Amy Coons. Jody picks up the phone. Amy says, "Jody, are you coming into work today?" Jody does not know what time it is. She asks Amy, you know, what time is it? Mm-hmm. Amy says it's 4.10 a.m. Amy says nothing about the phone conversation was strange. This was Jody asking the normal questions and normal answers. No commotion in the background. You know, nothing to well, trigger is, that this is a strange phone call. Well, this is the normal you overslept. Are you coming to work call? Yeah. Yeah. She got the impression that she had woke her up. Mm-hmm. That she had overslept. So, uh, 20 minutes go by and there's no Jody. Then 30, then 40 minutes, still nothing. Mm-hmm. Now, the key apartment complex where Jody lives is only about a five minute drive to the TV station. Producer Amy Coons and others continue to call Jody when she failed to show up, but Amy had to fill in for her on air at the six o'clock hour. Mm-hmm. She has said that at the time, 
Frankly, she was angry at Jody for not coming in. And after the hour-long TV show, the station staff decided to call police who would perform a welfare check on Jody at her apartment, Mm -hmm. which is just like we said, about a mile or so away. Now, when they get there, the police, they clearly see that something was amiss. There was something wrong from the get-go. So the welfare check takes place around 7.15 a.m. Officers find her red Mazda Miata in the parking lot of, of the downtown Mason City apartment complex. Also found at the scene were a pair of red women's dress shoes, a blow dryer, a bottle of hairspray, car keys, and earrings. Now, these items are found scattered beside her car. Police begin a missing persons investigation immediately. Officers search a park next to the apartment complex and along with the, uh, the Winnebago River that runs through the park. About 20 officers and several trained dogs searched a half-mile area around her apartment. Mason City Police Chief Jack Schlieper says that his department has no concrete leads. This is on the first day of her disappearance. At her apartment, they found the apartment to be in order. There was no evidence of anyone else having been there but Jody. So Jody doesn't show up to work. We have a co-worker calling her to wake her up. Mm-hmm. Sounds like she woke her up. Seems like she got ready to go to work. She went down to the parking lot with st- items to go to work. Mm-hmm. She seems like she was attacked on some level. We have no disturbance in the apartment. And then we also have reports of uh, female scream roughly around this same time. Yeah. Some of the neighbors in the apartment complex would later tell police that they had heard a scream or screams around 4.30 a.m. But unfortunately, nobody called police when they heard that. They, they didn't report this until they were later asked, did you hear anything strange? See anything strange? Now, the following day on Wednesday, June 28th, agents from the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation and the Federal Bureau of Investigation joined local officials in the search. Schlieper says that he suspects foul play, but says that there are few clues that have been discovered. On the 29th of June, this is just two days into the investigation, mm-hmm. the police chief says investigators have interviewed more than 100 people, but no one is considered a suspect at this time. And also on this day, a prayer service is held for Jody at the Mason City Church. I, I think they should just always make the statement that at this time, everybody's a suspect. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I think like keep people on their toes. Well, and I think that on July 1st, you know, just about five or six days into this investigation, Mm -hmm. I think, unfortunately, this is when it's really going to start to sink in for friends and family that, that she is gone, that something terrible possibly could have happened. This is when the police chief says that her disappearance is being treated as an abduction. And he says people that day had saw a white van in the parking lot of her apartment complex. Mm Mm-hmm. And also, this is when it's first reported about the screams that were heard around the time that she had vanished. Also on this day, Captain, and this is pretty sad, but Jody Hoosentrout was supposed to be a bridesmaid on this Saturday. This was when her best friend, Stacy Wagner, uh, from back from Long Prairie, Minnesota, she was getting married. 
Now, on that same day as well, the reward fund reaches $11,000. The next day, which is a Sunday, the Who's in True friends and family join other worshipers for a Sunday service at a Mason City Church. On July 3rd, late in the day, police call off the ground and air search for Who's in Truth, but say that they'll continue to conduct interviews. On July 6th, a a Mason City Martial Arts instructor says that Who's in Truth attended a self-defense course that he had taught in March of that same year. Now, the instructor says that Who's in Truth told him that she had an incident a few months back and that she wasn't comfortable with it. And this was her reasoning for taking the classes mm-hmm. on July 10th. Schlieper says that FBI behavioral scientist is trying to determine if who's in truth's case is linked to other disappearances of young women in the region. He also says that investigators have received more than 700 tips at this time, but they have no significant leads. On July 25th, Schlieper says about 800 people have been interviewed at this time, but again, no solid suspects. So we're seeing a, a constant pour in of tips Mm -hmm. and we see help from outside agencies. However, still over a month later, no solid suspects, no significant leads on September 8th, the who's in true family, um, from Minnesota. They say that they've hired a private investigator, Mason City Police continue to investigate leads and rumors surrounding the case. The Who's in Truth Reward Fund at the Mason City Bank now has reached $30,000. In November, this is on the 10th, police say a man was questioned about Who's in Truth's disappearance. He has been charged with stalking a television anchor in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. But Mason City Police say that the man is not considered a suspect in the Who's in Truth case. They are just questioning him. This is Charles Allen Davison. His name hasn't ever come up again in the investigation as far as I could find in right. newspaper articles. So I have to assume that they took a look at him and there was either nothing there or he was cleared. But there's no public statement that this man was cleared. On November 13th, members of the Who's in Truth family say that they flew to California and taped a session with three psychics for the television show Psychic Detectives. The psychics said that Who's in Truth's kidnapper was someone who saw her on TV and had become obsessed with her. Family members say three private investigators have found nothing to identify their suspect. Right. So they go to these psychics. Well, they were probably offered to go out there and you mm-hmm. know how it is. And, and and we do take a little bit of flack on this captain, as you know, that we'll get some flack from people that go, why did you mention psychics? Mm-hmm. We also get flack for why do you mention lie detector tests or polygraph tests? The reason being is they're part of the story. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we, here we have a victim's family that when you're talking about almost half a year later, they start grasping at straws. Right. And when you get a phone call that says, hey, would you come out to California? Tell us your story or tell us what you know about the story. We have these people here. They could be total frauds. You right. know that when you deal with psychics, they could be total frauds. Well, you, you know that dealing with anybody. That's true. But you know how the family is. They, at this point, they need anything that they can latch on to. Well, I'm not going to apologize for bringing up psychics because detectives use them all the time. So, why well, I care. 
Yeah. So they are these, but they, we also have the interesting thought here of the statement that the, the family has now hired three private investigators mm-hmm. that have also produced no leads in this case. Well, the thing that I was laughing about is, you know, they're, <laughs> I, I don't mind talking to psychics, but sometimes they come back with the, the obvious answer and then you go, okay, well, this person's probably a, a bunch of malarkey. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to be honest with you, that single statement there of a TV, you know, someone saw her on TV and became obsessed with her. That was kind of the general public's thought all along that it was Mm -hmm. either somebody that was stalking her or somebody that knew her. Now in June of 1996, this would be the one year anniversary of the abduction. Many newspapers ran stories featuring the case. Her best friend had the following to say. Now, when I say best friend, I'm talking about her best friend at the time. Remember, she had moved away from friends and family to pursue this career. Mm -hmm. She said that to think that somebody would want to hurt her, I try to block it out because I can't picture that. This is Annie Cruz, who was 29 years old during the course of this interview. She's a field representative for the American Heart Association. She had met Jody in 1993 at a benefit golf tournament and ever since they were inseparable. Now they said that they enjoyed bicycling, boating, inline skating. So they had a lot of shared hobbies. Mm -hmm. Now Cruz says she can't bring herself to watch KIMT TV uh, since the abduction. She hasn't been on her bike since Jody disappeared. And she said that she would be driving down the road and just start wondering, did this really happen? Like it started to feel like a movie to her. Did she really know her? Was the last year really real that her friend had disappeared and this investigation is ongoing. And she said, it's just a real bout with reality stating that I just can't see her being raped and hurt. My hope is instead that someone is keeping her maybe in a basement or an attic and that they're, are feeding her because they think that she is in love with them as well and and that she is their girlfriend. Mm. Now, let's go through some details, Captain, because there were some strange details that didn't come out right away in this investigation, and for whatever reason, most reports only scratch the surface. But when you dig a little deeper, you find some interesting particulars about the abduction. Now, I say abduction, and you and I have had this conversation before we turned on the mics today, abduction, not disappearance. You know, when we've talked about Mara Murray and Brian Schaefer, there were things in those individuals' backgrounds that point to things where they, they may have wanted to walk away from their life. Mm -hmm. There were things found at this crime scene and things that found in, uh, Jody Husentruth's life that didn't suggest that she walked away. And the crime scene shows that she was taken away. So Mm -hmm. we'll just refer to this as an abduction going forward. Now, her apartment, while most reports state that nothing was out of order there, there was a big to-do, and rightfully so, about the toilet seat. Yes. The toilet seat was found in the up position in her apartment. Yes. Now, I cannot overstate the significance of this fact enough. You know, this uh, many people have gone on to discuss this. Now, police stated flat out that it led them to believe that the man had been in her apartment either the night before or the morning of, which is possible. The other possibility is that she had some drinks and got sick. Yeah. That's interesting. 
That's interesting. So you have to wonder if there was a man there, then is it likely that he killed her? You know, and why the why would there be the crime scene in the parking lot? Was this some kind of argument that might have spilled outside of the apartment? Mm-hmm. Well, but we know who she was hanging out with the night before. Well, we believe so, and we'll get into that, but we also don't have any of her friends stating that she had any sleepover buddies, let's call it. Right, but she might not have been telling them about a sleepover buddy. Okay, so alternatively, like you said, either a guy would be there or maybe she got sick. Mm-hmm. Um, she was known to tie one on from time to time. Nothing wrong with that. We know that she overslept that day. Mm-hmm. Was she sleeping one off and got sick that morning or the night before? Mm-hmm. Was it just she was doing a little light cleaning and didn't put the seat down? Yeah, or she had a guy friend that she's been hanging out with that people don't know about and she got sick in the morning. One thing I wonder too, Captain, is is there a possibility that and we've heard of this. It's it's rare, but it does happen. Is there a possibility that maybe one of the police officers used the restroom? <laughs> I want to put it past them. Left the seat up and failed to fess up. And then this is just... Hey, Cliff, hold on. I got to take a leak. And this is just some kind of you know red herring that, that there's nothing mm-hmm. to do with anything here. Yeah. But there's also some beers found in her uh, apartment as well that weren't consistent with beers that she normally would drink. Yeah. And I find this to be a little more of a valuable clue. And I think it puts more weight to the toilet seat Mm -hmm. situation. Like you said, she was known to drink a specific kind of beer and I, I, I don't have it in my notes, but if memory serves me right, it was either Coors or Coors light Mm -hmm. that that was her preferred beer of, of beers, beer of choice. And there were some Bud Light 16 ounce cans that were also found in her apartment that were had been consumed. Mm. So there's some thought there that she could have went to a party or something and they had leftover beers and she just took those instead of taking cores. I mean, just because you, you know, I like to drink Guinness, but not every time you come over do you see Guinness in my refrigerator. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know types that drink the same beer all the time. You know, whenever they're drinking, they have the same beer. You and I obviously very different than that. A lot of our listeners very different that than that. Mm-hmm. The other thought would be how many times have even the people that state that they only drink a certain kind of beer? Well, if you're at a party and that beer runs out, you mm-hmm. very quickly drink whatever's left in the refrigerator. Were these beers that had been brought over at a previous date if you and drunk- just left in her refrigerator and she decided to consume them the night before? Yeah, if you drink enough beers, they all start tasting the same. <laughs> That's especially if you're talking about cores, cores light, Bud Light, mm-hmm. those. But so just to be clear, that while I'm unsure of what her preferred beer was, this what are regarded as the strange beer cans are Bud Light 16 ounce cans were found consumed in her apartment, and some believe that that might have been from the night before. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. 
Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. 
With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code TrueCrimeGarage50 at factormeals.com slash TrueCrimeGarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Cheers to you, Captain. Cheers to everybody out there. I want to give a cheers to all of our Stitcher listeners as well. Yeah, for all of our old episodes, they're available for free on the Stitcher app and also our show Off the Record, which I think episode number three was released yesterday, and that's only on Stitcher Premium. So check out stitcherpremium.com slash Garage. All right, Captain, where we left off, we were about to talk about what I think might be one of the more important items found at the crime scene, and that is... We're talking about Jody's keys. So one of the keys, the key to her red Mazda Miata mm-hmm. was bent. It was found to be bent. Now, But it was bent in the door handle. Okay, so I have a few different reports of that, and I think you're right there. I, that seems to be the what is reported most often, that the key was found bent and still in the lock. You know, somebody was in the process of unlocking the door or had unlocked the door, opened the door, and the key was bent. Mm-hmm. Other reports state that a bent key was found near her car, giving the impression that maybe it had been on the ground. I would like to know if it was a factory key or a replacement key, because a replacement key would be easier to bend, but a factory key, I mean, you're talking about some pressure that you're going to have to put on that key to bend it. Well, so I want to give a little background on the car and her apartment before we go too far into what this could mean. So her her Miata was a 1995. So it was a very new vehicle. And in mm-hmm. fact, she had purchased it shortly before her abduction. Now, I don't have an exact date on that. I believe that it was months before her abduction. So that would lead me to believe that it's more of a factory key that came with the vehicle itself. Um, one thing that's been highly speculated, and I think it should be is that the vehicle had keyless entry. So Mm -hmm. you putting the key in the car door is not required where a lot of people, that's where, that's where the argument comes into play of, well, okay, I read that it was found near the vehicle, and somebody else says, well, I read that it was found in the car door. Then the people that are of the belief that it was found near the vehicle say, well, there was keyless entry, so it's more likely that it was found near the vehicle and not in the car door. 
Mm. My argument against that thought would be, I think we're putting too much thought one into whether it was found in the door or near the car. I think the important thing is that it was in fact bent. Um, some people have suggested that the key was very thin and would have bent just by falling to the ground. I disagree with that a million times over. I had, I had an 89 Mazda and while it was not the same vehicle, not the same set of keys, I didn't find that those keys to be frail at all. And I dropped them several times and none of them were ever bent. And like I said, it was an older vehicle. There was more opportunity for this key to be bent. The, the other thing that I think is interesting here though, captain is we are talking about a young woman that was woke up by a coworker. This is an oh shit moment for her. She picks up the phone. Are you coming to work today? What no. time? What time is it? You know that's an you know that's an oh shit moment when the first response is what time is it? Right. And you find out that it's four ten that you are already more than an hour late for work. And we I believe this. There is some speculation. Could that have been somebody else on the phones? Could somebody else at at uh, Jody's apartment have answered that phone that day. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's likely because she says, well, I'll be there in 20 minutes. Well, and she has a very distinct voice as well. Yes. Thank you for pointing that out. But here's the thing, captain. Mm-hmm. What I'm thinking about is, have you ever been running late for somewhere important? This would be an important place for her. She loved her career. She was wor- She wanted to advance her career not only with this station, but to get into bigger markets. Have you ever been running late for somewhere and you realize you're rushing and you're panicking and in the course of that, you're doing things that don't make sense and you're actually causing yourself to be increasingly more late? Mm-hmm. I've never been invited somewhere important. <laughs> well, what I, what I mean is, is there a chance that this car was relatively new to her? Mm-hmm. It had keyless entry. Maybe the vehicle she had before she did not have keyless entry Mm -hmm. and in the midst of being uh, running late to this important job of hers, she just hurried out to the car and came what was natural and stuck the key in the car door, even though that it had keyless entry. Well, what I'd like to know is was there batteries in the remote? Because if those batteries were taken out, then maybe somebody knew this is how they're going to attack her. Somebody that knew her closely could say, okay, well, I know that she leaves for work around this time to this time. I'm going to be waiting. I'm going to take the batteries out of her remote when those don't work. Right. And buy you, you, you some more time time. to get her before she gets in the car. We should paint a picture of the parking lot and the apartment complex. So people have a good idea. So Bob Ross it up. Her Miata was parked. I've, I've read several different statements. Mm Mm-hmm. That it was parked only about 7 to 10 or 12 to 15 steps from the apartment complex door. So regardless of who you want to uh, believe there, it's still a very short distance from the apartment complex door. Now, her apartment was on the second floor. And it's one of those apartments where you would walk in and there's a big shared hallway. And everybody that lives in that building would access the door to their apartment from that hallway. Yeah. Hers is on the second floor. The stairs to get downstairs is inside that shared hallway. So she would come out of her apartment door, walk down the steps 
and then still be in the hallway and exit the door there before walking the seven to 15 steps to get to her car. So what does that mean? That means that if she was attacked by somebody that was outside waiting for her, they have a very short, very brief time period to see her react, attack, and then successfully abduct her from that spot. Yeah. And the other thing here is that she was running late. So if somebody was waiting for her on a regular time, they were waiting longer in anticipation of her coming out. Yeah. And that's wild too, because like you said, this person would have waited a considerable amount of time more waiting on her. Mm-hmm. And the whole time you're waiting, you're adding to the risk level that you are taking to perform this abduction. You're talking about somebody that would be waiting an additional 70 to 100 minutes for Jody to come out. Well, when they say it was a white van, I always wondered, could that have been a news van? Hmm. Because, you know, one of the angles of this case is that she worked in a pretty cutthroat industry. People were trying to get ahead. I mean, we've all seen Anchorman, so we know the battles that happen. Yeah. Before we get into the van, though, Captain, I want to kind of go through some of the things that were found at the crime scene as well. So we have, like we mentioned before, there were several items that she was going to take to work with her. And the captain has pointed out that these were items that her friends and colleagues had said that she would always carry to work. These were not items, you know, these were found in scattered in the parking lot. Mm. It's the hairdryer, a pair of heels, hairspray, earrings. These were found at the crime scene. These were not items that she was taking because she was late that day. These were items she took every day. They were in a tote that she, it appears she was planning on placing the tote in the passenger side uh, car seat. Right. In the passenger seat. And then she would walk around, get into the driver's seat and drive off to work. Now, like you said, though, something happened before that. The, the, for most reports that I read regarding about the, the key being found in the car door state that the key was found in the passenger side car door. So was it could, she it could have just been as simple as the remote didn't work on the passenger side door. Right. It could be something. And she goes to open the door. Somebody comes up from behind, incapacitates her. There's enough force on that key to bend it, but leave it in the lock. Right. Now, regarding blood at the scene, was there any blood at the scene? Now, contrary to many, many rumors that are out there, the police have constantly and consistently denied that any blood was found at the crime scene. Also, we have a palm print to discuss. There's a partial palm print that was found on or in the car. Now, police have never said where on the vehicle that they found this palm print. It's probably on the outside. They, my, my initial thought here is that they must be convinced that it came from the perpetrator of this abduction because it seems that at times they have relied on this palm print to rule out potential perpetrators. Well, so we have this palm print. We have our items scattered everywhere, but we also have these drag marks that were found in the dirt close to her car. Yeah. This leading the police to believe that Jody had been incapacitated and then dragged to a waiting vehicle. This must be, you know, we have these other items that, that are upsetting 
to find and of concern to find. And I think this would be the icing on the cake when they stated immediately that we are working this as a possible abduction. It's because everything at the scene is pointing to exactly that. Now, one interesting piece of evidence, and I don't know how much value this can have, but it must have something because there was a hair found at the crime scene as well. And this is something that we are not told about for many, many years after the crime. Mm -hmm. This is Frank Stearns of the NCPD. I'm sorry, MCPD. He told this to Nancy Grace on her show in 2013. So we're talking about almost 20 years later that they state that we found hair at the crime scene. They did not say. You're saying that they found hair at the crime scene? What they wouldn't say is if they had found DNA on this hair. <laughs> I can see her now. So you wanted to get into the suspicious vehicles. And I say suspicious vehicles because there's been a couple of different reports about vehicles of suspicion that morning. The first being the obvious one, the white van. And a lot of people have referred to this as a possible or likely Ford Econoline van that was seen by a neighbor. This is Randy Linderman in the parking lot of the apartment complex that morning. He spotted this vehicle around. It's a very early morning. He, he spotted this vehicle around 4 a.m. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said it was parked there with either its running lights or its brake lights on. Now, a lot of effort went into finding this van, but police were never able to. I want to point out a couple things here. Some people think, well, maybe Randy Linderman might be a person of interest because why would he take notice of this van if he d- was unaware that something important was going to happen that day? Now, he stated later that the only reason why he noticed the van was from when he first spotted it, he actually thought it was a police vehicle mm. and he was of concern because he might've been speeding in the parking lot at the time. He took notice of it, slowed down. What, and then what was he, he doing in the parking lot? Um, I, I don't just driving home because that's really early in the morning. Well, no, no, no. I should, I guess I should be clear. I, the parking lot is very near a road. Obviously. I don't know if he was traveling on the road or if he was traveling in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. What I do know is that he states that he took notice of it because he thought it was a police vehicle and he thought that he had been exceeding the speed limit at that time. Right. He slowed down, looked at the vehicle and we've all done this. When you think that you're, when you think that you're speeding and you see a police vehicle, you slow down and then you look to observe to see if in fact it was a police vehicle. And if it was, are they going to pull out of that spot and follow me? I speed up and turn off my lights. He is the one that was the eyewitness to this white van. Now, I, I want to bring something up here because this is something that I've seen in a couple of different cases regarding this white van. This mm-hmm. white van in reports, it's stated it's a white van. Mm-hmm. There are other reports that state a light colored van where I think that we run some risky business here when we really specify things that might not be known at the time. Mm-hmm. Was this a white van or was it a light colored van? Because under the cover of darkness and in a parking lot where it's lit by street lights, you could get the impression of a different color than what the actual color of that van is. Mm-hmm. Now, remember, he states that he saw this vehicle around 4 a.m. or so. We know that she was abducted around 4.30 a.m. that day. The sun did not rise 
until 5.35 a.m. that day. So it still would have been dark at this time. We would have The light would have been provided for, from street lamps. There's a good chance this was not a white vehicle, not a white van, and just a light color. It could be yellow. I mean, how many people have seen a yellow or a gray van at night, and it appears to be lighter colored than what it is? Yeah, I, it's also interesting to me because, yes, we have a lot of things now. Um, we'll have restaurants. We'll have fast food chains. We'll have grocery stores that are open 24-7. That wasn't very common in 1995. So you're talking about a time period between 4 and 4.30 a.m. where you're talking about a very small percentage of people that are even going to be awake. Right. And then as far as suspicious vehicles go, we also have that incident that Jody had reported in the past, you know, that took place just a few months before her abduction that her family said had scared her enough to, to the point where she even reported it to the Mason City Police. This took place when she was rollerblading one day. She says that she believes she was closely followed by a black pickup truck with dark windows. Mm. Her family says that she was so upset enough to run into a house and ask to use the phone. She called her mom very upset and reported it to the MCPD. Police escorted her to work a few times to and from work a few times after the incident. Yeah, this this is where it gets weird for me because there is rumors that she talked about threats, that she felt threatened, that she was concerned about this. She was concerned that somebody would try to attack her or abduct her. And then there's rumors that she wasn't that concerned. But if you're calling the police and they're escorting you to and from work, it seems like you're taking that part pretty serious. My guess is that this is something that she often found herself in, a com- in conversation regarding. Mm-hmm. And depending on her mood, one might get a different thought of, of her opinion of what was going on. I don't know that she received any threats per se, but we do have this incident with the vehicle that she believed was following her. And right. like you said, to the point where she gets a police escort, they probably recommended the police escort She receives this a couple of times. The police actually even ran Mason city black pickup registrations against criminal records to see if there were, they could cross reference anything, but nothing came of this. Yeah. And, but again, and I think, I think you're more right than some of these other thoughts and opinions because not only did she get that police escort, but she also took a few self-defense classes according to the, um, the instructor there. Right. Also, her colleague, Amy Coons, this was the the woman that called her because she was late that morning and filled in for her because she didn't arrive. She says that it was very obvious to her that Jody was, in fact, wary about uh, some things. In particular, she was worried about leaving for work alone in the middle of the night. You know, she's supposed to be there at 3 a.m. We also have the item, the thought that there might have been some screams heard that that morning so well she if she's attacked getting into her car i'm assuming if she took defense classes one of the things they tell you is to make some noise Mm -hmm. try to get people's attention so i i believe that those screams definitely were were jody's yeah and there's people that have said that the screams came around 4:30 a.m. It's too much of a coincidence, I think, Captain, that that time period 
lines up with the very most likely time that she was abducted. For people to hear these screams, the, right. there's a couple of... I mean, not only is it concerning that nobody called 911, but there were a lot of those windows from those apartments that looked down into the parking lot. Nobody, nobody looked outside to see if they could see anything. So this, while we, while this really only backs up the fact that they might have the time right of when she was abducted, it provides us with little to no other leads. There are some rumors. Well, and it's sad too, because like, like her coworker said, you know, we, she didn't show up. And then we called the police afterwards, which maybe if they would have called the police earlier that they maybe they would have seen something or seen the vehicle. Yeah. Um, so there's all these little things that had to happen just right for us to really not know. And the thing, though, too, is we have there's a rumor. And I want to I want to say that the reason why I'm stating that this is a rumor is because the only place that I found this was it came from. It came from legit news sources. However, I could not find at any time an actual officer on record stating this, uh, whether it be a detective or somebody involved in the case. Yeah. But the rumor was that during the course of hearing those screams that one or maybe more people heard a name shouted out or a name screamed out. Now, whatever that name was, was never released. I couldn't find anywhere where they're saying, Oh, it sounded like a woman was yelling the name Todd or Tim or anything like that. Um, So then the news outlets went on to speculate further that police must believe that the perpetrator was someone known to her because after she's attacked or before she's grabbed, she's shouting out their name. You know, no, no, Todd, don't do this or Tim, let me go. You know, something to that effect. The problem I have with this is I I don't know. You know, I'm on the fence here because this seems like something that the police would either A, hold back because they they need to hold on to that name. Right. But it also seems to me, doesn't it seem to you, Captain, if, if they really believed that it was somebody that knew her, we're not talking about a woman that had a huge circle of people in the sense that of close friends and family in the area. Yeah, but if they know what that name is, right? Mm-hmm. So then they have a pretty good idea. Like if we have a couple, let's call them ear witnesses that say, yeah, we heard this scream around 4.30 and we also think that we heard a name and the police know that name, but the perpetrator doesn't know that the police know that name. And so that would be, to me, information that if it's a person inside her circle, you would not want to release that name because you're going to try to get the upper hand on them going to try to catch them in a lie i i I mean i totally agree the only issue i take with that is that you at the same time you have the newspapers and uh the media stating that a name was heard and the police are aware of that okay right but then my my other argument for not keeping it close to the chest is if that person is not in that circle and that name isn't known to you within a couple days of looking into her life then maybe you'd release that name just to yeah. have anybody say, oh, well, you know, this lady that went missing, she was screaming Timmy or whatever. And, right. and I know a Timmy and he was acting weird for a couple days. My so. my other thought, though, is that maybe we only have one ear witness stating that they think they heard a name. And what what was reported to the police? Was it, 
oh, it could have been Todd. It could have been Tim. Right. It could have been John. It could have been, you know what I mean? Or are they the only ones saying it definitely was a Todd? I heard a Todd. And right. then the police are going, well, wait a second. This we don't know how much makes sense. We don't know how much weight to put into this, the credibility of this. And do we lose the public's help mm-hmm. in the course of this investigation, which we very much need at this point? Do we lose their help or misguide them? Because now they think we're looking for a Todd and only a Todd. Just like I said that I think that the white van description is a little irresponsible. Does it mislead the public that we are now only looking for a white van? Yeah. Well, we did a good job, Captain, of talking about the abduction, what could have happened that day, and the investigation that ensued afterwards. But I think that's important to address her life before the abduction as well. Now, we state that police suspect that she was abducted. They say that the roots of that abduction may lie in the overwhelming ambition, her dream to be on television. Who's in truth pursued her media dreams at Minnesota St. Cloud University, where she studied mass communications. Professors say she stood out at a time when more and more college students were drawn to the television spotlight. Now, after college, who's in truth's aspirations to break into commercial television led to a job as an intern at KGAN in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Her colleagues remember her as a hardworking, energetic, and friendly young woman mm-hmm. and say Jody was a fast learner. After only a year, she left Cedar Rapids for a bigger job in a smaller television market. This is Mason city, Iowa a farm and family-oriented community of 30,000. Within months after having arrived in Mason City, Who's in Truth was a celebrity, a local celebrity. And a growing audience for her morning news show reflected her popularity. In the autumn of 1994, Who's in Truth feared one viewer was taking that sense of intimacy too far. Mm. She was convinced that a suspicious black pickup truck was following her. Now, a little more on this was that friends had stated that, I'm sorry, I believe this was her sister, I apologize, stated that Jody had got very, very nervous and was even crying and eventually called her mom on the phone. And her mother was telling her, you need to take more precautions. So she was nervous enough, as we had said, to file a police report. The police helped her out, thank God, during this tough time for her. They say there was no further problems. Now, on her 27th birthday, this was on June 5th. Now, this situation didn't take place on her 27th birthday. But her 27th birthday would have been about three weeks and a day before she was abducted. Mm-hmm. Jody's friend and one-time neighbor, this is John Van Sice, he threw a surprise birthday party for her. This is at a bar and invited were Jody's friends and coworkers. There will be a lot of suspicion surrounding this man later, but I wanted to make sure that we brought up things that were going on in her life leading up to the abduction. Mm -hmm. Many people out there have long suspected that John Van Sice was having, having abducted her and killing Jody. Now, some believe John was infatuated with her. John in 1995 was about 20 years older than Jody. Now they met when he lived at the key apartment complex in 1994. 
Reportedly, the two of them spent a lot of time together. They had similar hobbies. They would golf, and I and he had a boat. Yes. And John described his relationship with her as friends and as a father-daughter type relationship. Mm-hmm. And as you had said, they shared several of the same hobbies. Jody's family reported that there was nothing romantic about the two's relationship, and there is actually nothing out there to suggest that anything otherwise. Well, and Jody was a very positive person. And so I think she came into his life at a time where maybe things weren't going so great, but she was somebody that was, you know, upbeat and positive about things. So he's, it changed his outlook on his life. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think he very, very much valued their friendship. Well, about 10 days before the abduction, Jody in what I would suspect to have been Jody's best friend at the time, or at least someone she seemed to spend a lot of, well, a great deal of time with. This is Tammy Baker. The two were fast friends sharing the same interest. Uh, they were roughly the same age. According to Tammy, Jody and her spent much of the weekend together. So this is the weekend 10 days before her abduction. Now, the following weekend, let's go to Friday, June 23rd, 1995, the weekend before Jody was abducted. Jody, with her good friend Tammy Baker, they go and they spend a day on the lake water skiing with Jody's friend, John Van Sice, who we had meant, mentioned earlier, and his son, Trenton Van Sice. Mm-hmm. Now, after a full day, the ladies stayed the night in an apartment on Iowa City. In Iowa City, I'm sorry. This is Trenton's apartment. So John Van Sice's son, this is his apartment. Right. And as you had mentioned, when they were out on the water, they spent that day on John's boat. They they were going to stay there for a full weekend, but rain cut that trip a little shorter than they had planned, so they returned home. Now, Monday, the day before the abduction, this is after work, Jody goes to a charity golf tournament. There she is accompanied by the TV station's news director. But even though they're accompanied by one another, they, according to him, they only see each other briefly during this event. And anybody that's ever played in charity golf tournaments know that you kind of are paired off with a group of people. You spend the majority of the day with them. Mm-hmm. You see the rest of the people in passing. Now, at 8 p.m. following the golf tournament. So she left the golf tournament approximately at 8 p.m. that night. The gray area here is what was going on with Jody between 8 p.m. that night and then the following morning when she takes the phone call from her coworker at 4.10 a.m. So at 8 p.m. that night, she leaves the golf tournament. According to John Van Sice, Jody then went to his apartment. They were going to view a videotape of the birthday party from a couple of weeks before. Mm-hmm. He says that she left his apartment around 10 p.m. that night. Now, he told news reporters that Jody, you know, he was very specific about her leaving. He's like, I watched her walk down the stairs. She turned around the corner and she must have gotten her car and drove home. There's there's a couple of issues here. And does she call when she gets home? Because normally, like if I'm hanging out with a friend, guy or girl, and we leave a bar or they leave or if I'm at their house. And I leave their house, like I'll text when I get home. Hey, made it home. Um, Especially if you had a couple drinks. The last he saw her, according to John Van Sice, was her walking down the stairs from his apartment 
and turning around the corner to go to her vehicle. There's a couple of conflicting reports out there and we can get, we'll dive more into this yeah, in tomorrow's episode because we're, we're running out of time here, but I do want to point out that there was a phone call that there was in fact a phone call that was made that night. The timing of that phone call is slightly unclear and we'll get into that again tomorrow's show, but there was a phone call that was made from Jody to a friend. And we know that this came from Jody because it was made from a landline inside her apartment. And this would be to her friend, Kelly Torgerson. Now Kelly lives in Mississippi. When Kelly was not home, when Jody called, but the phone was answered and Jody spoke to Kelly's husband who she knew. Well, she knew him well. The husband would later tell reporters and police that on the phone, Jody sounded happy. She didn't sound like anything was troubling her. Um, he simply told her, Hey, look, Kelly's not home. Take a message. I'll have her call you back. The two didn't speak. Okay. There was never any return call before she was abducted. Now, as we know, likely the last person to speak with Jody was Amy Coons and Amy was actually Jody's assistant at the time. We had said her colleague, her title was associate producer or assistant producer of this TV station. So Jody technically was her boss. Whether the two were actually friends, were, were more than just coworkers, is a point of debate. In an interview, Amy had the following to say. To be honest, I almost dread the anniversary coming around every year. It's dredging, it's the dredging up of all the old feelings and all the unanswered questions. Almost an eerie feeling. You always have those questions in your mind. You always wonder if you could have done something more. There's almost a guilt I have to live with wondering if something could have been done. Now, Coons, who was the associate producer of the early morning show that who's in true anchored said the two had discussed the what if possibilities in terms of having to leave from work, I'm sorry, from home for work in the early morning darkness each day. She said that we had talked about it. We had conversations that went so far to ask if someone, if something would happen to one of us, who would know saying we had a pact that if either of us was late, we would call each other. Well, that's why she called her that morning. And Coons worked very closely with police in the days following Who's in Truth's disappearance. She went with them to Jody's apartment. The police wanted her to see if anything looked out of place. Now, she would later say that nothing did. Then she had to go through Jody's clothing. They wanted her to figure out what possible outfit she might've been wearing at the time of her abduction. Mm -hmm. After five years, Coon said that she had finally come to grips with the idea that something terrible probably had happened to Jody saying that if she's dead, I hope she didn't have to suffer. That's the hard thing to think about. I just hope she didn't have to suffer. Now Coon said that she called, remember going back to that morning, Coon said that she had called who's in true around four ten AM that morning and spoke with her who's in true had said that she had overslept and that she would be heading to the studio shortly. This has been a hotly debated issue online. Now we should mention that Amy Coons also left a phone message and then another phone message for Jody after she had spoken with her on the phone. 
She has said in an interview that she called again around 5 a.m. and left a frantic message for her, stating that honestly at the time, at first she was really mad because Amy was going to have to edit and write the show and put everything together at the last minute. Now, we mentioned that the show went on air at 6 a.m. At this time, Who's in Truth had still not shown up. Amy Coons had to fill in, go on air for her. And when there was still no sign of who's in troop by the show's end at 7 a.m., this is when the police were called. Now, Amy has been questioned by many people over the years of why didn't you do something more? Why didn't you call and call again? Why did you wait so long to call the police? And her answer is very simple, stating, I don't know why I didn't call the police. And so many people have asked me that time and time again, but I just didn't think that anything could be wrong. I really didn't. A lot more to get into tomorrow, but in the meantime, check out our store page. We got a limited edition shirt that we made. Uh, it's girls don't like boys. Girls like true crime garage and murder documentaries. So check out it's a tank top and a t-shirt. Until next time, be good, be kind, and don't litter. you are bpm's high sweat dripping body moving tongue panting you're working hard real hard and you're thirsty you need vitamins nutrients for peak performance and energy and your plants do too Aww. i mean just look at the little guy water soluble plant food from miracle grow is full of essential nutrients just a little scoop into your watering can and boom instant feeding and bigger more beautiful plants it's kind of like a sports drink for your plants you may have to suffer from heat but your plants do not 